to Psalm 27. Psalm 27, and we're going to read the chapter in its entirety. Psalm 27. Of David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock, and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and courageous and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come once again to your word to hear you speak to us. You have told us to seek your face, and so, Lord, that's why we're here. Our hearts are crying out to you, your face, Lord, do we seek. So we pray that you would show yourself to us this morning through your word. Show us the beauty of your character, because that's what we want, to know you face to face. So still our hearts now, we pray, and may we gaze upon you with joy and with gladness. We ask this not because we are worthy, but for Jesus' sake, And in his name, amen. Well, this past week as I was studying in preparation to preach this morning, I I found myself going back and forth on what exactly to call the sermon, what title um, I should give to it, because everything I came up with didn't quite seem to fit the theme of the text. But what I finally decided on was the song of the fearful. And the reason I decided on that is because fear is what David is dealing with in this psalm. He's struggling against the fears that are rising up all around him. And he's trying desperately with all of his might to keep his focus on God. And I don't know about you. I I wondered if I could do a poll this morning, but I'm not going to be able to. I just don't have enough time. 
I, I struggle with that. I wonder if you struggle with that. My guess is that you do, and, and here's why. We as human beings, all of us, all of us, love. We love. Every single one of us here this morning loves. And the reason for that is because we're made in God's image. And since therefore God loves, we love as well. Since God is a lover, we too are lovers. And so if you look at your life, if you step back and look at it, what you'll see is that it's filled with people and things that you love. You love your family. You love your friends. You love your job. You love your hobbies. You, you love your home. You love certain kinds of food and activities. And you even love yourself. But you see, here's the problem that we immediately run into. We now live in a fallen world. Because of sin and the curse, we now live in a world that we weren't created to live in, a world that is hostile to us. And because of that, we will eventually lose everything that we love. Everything that we love in this life eventually comes to an end. And that's a real problem for us because we want to hold on to what we love for forever. And that shouldn't surprise us because guess what? That's what we were created for, to never be separated from what we love. But you see, because of the fall and because of sin and because of the curse, we eventually lose everything. We lose our families. We lose our friends. We lose our jobs. We lose our hobbies. We lose our homes. And one day, we eventually lose our very lives. So you see, I hate to be a bummer to you all this morning. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. But the reality is that we will eventually lose everything that we love and hold dear in this life. Everything. And so this is the tension that we feel all of our lives. On the one hand, we love deeply. And so we want to hold on to what we love. But on the other hand, we eventually lose everything that we love. And so as a result of this, underneath everything that we do, and underneath everything that we say, and underneath everything that we love, there is an undercurrent of fear. And so fear is, is always lurking in the background of each one of our lives. It haunts us. And why does it haunt us? Because just beneath the surface of our love is the fear of losing what we love. And so then the only way we can be free from fear is to love nothing. Is to close our hearts off and let nothing in. But you see, if we do that, as C.S. Lewis so famously said, our hearts will change for the worse. They will become hard and calloused and lifeless because that's not what we were created for. In other words, to refuse to love is to refuse to be fully human. And so we can't live that way. It's just not even an option that's on the table for us. Okay, but then how do we handle this? How do we deal with the fear that each and every one of us face of losing what we love? Well, in Psalm 27, 
David actually shows us how. He shows us how to deal with the fear of losing what we love. And he does so by showing us three truths that we must know in order to deal with the fear in our lives. Three truths we must know in order to deal with the fear in our lives. We need to know that fear is inevitable, that God is beautiful, and that waiting is normal. So first, let's look at how fear is inevitable. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me again. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. Now, from just these three verses, if we were just to look at these three verses in isolation from the rest of the psalm, it doesn't really sound like David struggles with fear at all, does it? I mean, he sounds so, so bold and confident here. Because in verse 1, what does he say? Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? And then in verse 3, he says, my heart will not fear. And yet, I will be confident. So from these three verses, if we just looked at these three verses, it doesn't sound like there's even a whiff of fear in David's life. He doesn't seem to be struggling with fear at all. But you see, we can't just look at these three verses in isolation from the rest of the psalm. Because if we jump forward just a couple of verses, what we see is a very different picture. We see a David who's afraid and in distress. For example, look at verse 7. David says, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. And then in verse 8 he says, Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. And then lastly, in verse 10 he says, Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have arisen against me and they breathe out violence. So what do these verses show us? They show us that David is clearly struggling with fear. Clearly. But if that's true, then we have to ask ourselves a question. Why, in verses 1 through 3, does David seem to be impervious to fear, but then in verses 7, 8, and 10, he seems to be in the throes of fear? How do, we, how do we fit those two things together? Well, here's how. You see, in verses 1 through 3, what David is doing is he's reminding self, himself that even though he is afraid, ultimately, he doesn't have to be afraid. In other words, David's not claiming to be fearless in verses 1 through 3. Don't misunderstand. The rest of the psalm makes that abundantly clear. Instead, David is reminding himself that even though he is afraid, he ultimately doesn't have to be. And just in case you think I'm completely misreading this text, let me show you another psalm where David does the exact same thing. Look at Psalm 56 with me. Psalm 56, just turn forward a couple of pages. And I'll start in verse 1. Psalm 56 Verse 1, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. 
All day long, an oppressor oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid. Did you catch that? When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. Now listen to this again. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? So did you catch what happened there? In verse 3, David said, when I am afraid. In other words, David's afraid. He he experiences fear. But then in verse 4, he says, I shall not be afraid. In other words, David's saying that he won't be afraid. So what's going on here? How is David both afraid and not afraid at the same time? Well, you see, it's the same tension that we have in Psalm 27. Even though David is afraid, he's reminding himself that ultimately he doesn't have to be. Now, why is this important? Why are we spending so much time looking at this? Well, here's why. Because if we don't understand this tension then we will also fail to understand the Bible's command to us over and over and over again to not be afraid. Because here's what happens. I have people who come into my office, my counseling office, all the time who tell me that they feel guilty. Why? Because they're afraid. And when I ask them why they feel guilty, do you know what they say? They say, I feel guilty because in the Bible, God tells me to not be afraid. And yet I am afraid. And so I feel guilty for disobeying God's word. Now, once they say that, do you know how I respond? In one way or another, I ask them, has your fear kept you from doing what God wants you to do? And if they say no, then you know what I tell them? I tell them that their fear is not sinful. And here's why I tell them that. Because fear, in and of itself, is not sinful. Fear is a good thing. It's even a healthy thing. And it can be really bad if you're not afraid when you should be. But don't misunderstand me. Fear can become sinful. It can. And do you know when it becomes sinful? It becomes sinful when we sin in response to fear. If we sin because we're afraid, then our fear is sinful. But if we're obedient even in our fear, then it's not sinful. In other words, fear is like a temptation to sin, but is not a sin in and of itself. In other words, uh, let me give you an example. Let me give you the supreme example of this. You ready? Do you remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was praying there on the night he was to be crucified. And do you remember what he asks of God the Father? He says, Father, if it is at all possible, let this cup pass from me. Now I want you to think about this with me. Why did Jesus pray that? Why didn't Jesus say, Father, I know you're going to raise me from the dead and that all that you've promised about me will be fulfilled and so I will gladly drink from this cup because I'm fearless Why didn't Jesus say that? Because you see, Jesus was afraid. He was afraid to bear the wrath of Almighty God. He was afraid to suffer. He was afraid to be humiliated. He was afraid to die. Do you see that? So then here's the question. Did Jesus sin 
by being afraid? No, he didn't. Why? Because Jesus was perfectly obedient even in his fear. So you see, fear in and of itself isn't sinful. It's what we do in response to fear that determines whether it's sinful or not. And so when we are afraid, hear me out on this, when we are afraid, our ultimate goal shouldn't be to try to get rid of the fear. I mean, I understand why we try to do that, but it just makes things worse. Our ultimate goal should be to ask ourselves, how can I be faithful to God in the midst of this fear? That's the question we have to ask. And it's important for us to keep that in mind because the reality is that we will all experience fear in this life because in this fallen world, fear is inevitable. That's what David is showing us. But that's not all he shows us. He also shows us that the key to dealing with our fears is to know that God is beautiful. God is beautiful. Look at verses 4 through 12 with me again. One thing I have asked of the Lord... That I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will sacrifice in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not. O God of my salvation, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. Now in these verses, David is telling us how he deals with the fear in his life. And here's the thing he says. He says, listen, There's one thing I want from God more than anything else. There's only one thing that I seek. And do you know what that is? I want with all my heart to dwell in the house of the Lord. Not just for a day, not just for a week, not even for just a year, but for all the days of my life. So what's David telling us here? What's he telling us is the one thing that he wants from God. Well, before we answer that question, let me clarify for you what David is not saying here. David is not asking to live in the physical house of the Lord, which is the temple, because that would be impossible for David. Why? Because only the Levites could live in the temple of the Lord. So that's not what David's seeking here. Okay, so what is he seeking? Well, the one thing David is seeking is the presence of God. He wants to know God. And so in David's day, if you wanted to know God, where did you go? Well, you went to the temple. You went to the house of the Lord. And why did you go there? Because that's where God's presence was. That's where God made himself known. That's where he showed his face to his people. And so what David is saying is that more than anything else, he wants to know God 
face to face. That's the one thing he seeks. That's the one thing he wants from God is simply to know him. Now, interestingly enough, that's also the one thing God tells him to seek. Just look at verse 8. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. So, so what does this mean? What does it mean to seek the face of God? Well, it means to know God intimately. You see, David doesn't just want to know God casually. He doesn't just want to know God at a surface level. He wants to know him face to face. So, for example, if you're a first-time visitor here this morning, and you have now been in my presence, whoop-de-doo, right? Big deal. But you see, you've seen me, you've heard my voice, and maybe you know a thing or two about me, like how much I talk with my hands. But even though you've been in my presence, you still haven't met me yet. And so if you wanted to meet me, what would you have to do? You'd have to come to me and talk to me, right? You'd have to seek me out and come forward after the service to talk to me. And as you talk to me, where would you speak? Where would you look as you spoke to me? Well, hopefully you'd look at my face, right? So you wouldn't come up and start talking to my foot or, or start talking to my hand. You'd talk to my face. And why is that? Why would you speak to my face? You'd speak to my face because my face is the relational gate to my heart. It's how I see you and hear you and speak to you. So you see, it's not just enough for you to be in my presence if you want to have a relationship with me. You have to draw near and get to know me face to face in order to have that relationship. And that's exactly what David is saying he wants with God. He wants to draw near to God's presence and know him intimately face to face. Well, then the question that naturally follows is, how does David do that? How does he dwell in God's presence face to face? Well, David tells us how. In verse 4, he shows us two ways for how to seek God's face. And the first way, he says, is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Does it mean that David would go to the temple and actually have a vision of the beauty of the Lord? Well, that's possible, but it's highly unlikely. Instead, what it most likely means is that through the temple rituals, through the temple ceremonies, David would see the beauty of God's character revealed. So, for example, what was one of the most common rituals that would take place at the temple? Sacrifices, right? Animals were almost constantly being sacrificed at the temple. And so when David would see that ritual take place, an animal being slaughtered, what would he see? What truth about God's character would he see through that ritual? Well, for one thing, he'd see that God was holy and righteous and just because why were the animal sacrifices being made? Why were the animals being slaughtered? They were being slaughtered to cover the sins of the Israelites. They were being sacrificed to cover their guilt. And so what David would see in that ritual was that God is a God who takes sin very seriously. He's a God who punishes sin. He's not a God who just sweeps sin under the rug. And what David is saying is that what he sees is that when he sees that, he sees the beauty of God's character. He sees the beauty of God's character in that. But that's not the only character trait he'd see. He'd also see that God was merciful and gracious. 
and kind. Because here's a God who has made a way for his people's sins to be covered. Here's a God who has made a way for his people to relate for it to him and for him to relate to his people. Here's a God who has graciously provided a substitute so that his people don't have to die for their sins. So do you see how this works? This is how David would gaze at the beauty of God. It wasn't through some grand vision. It was through the ordinary means that God had provided. It was through the ordinary rituals that David would gaze at the beauty of God's character. So that's how David gazed at the beauty of God. But here's the question. How do we gaze at the beauty of God? Because we don't have a temple anymore. And we don't make animal sacrifices anymore. So where do we look to gaze at the beauty of God? Well, the New Testament actually tells us. You don't have to turn there. Please don't try to. But in John chapter 2, we see in verse 19 that Jesus tells the Jews that if they destroy this temple, he will raise it up in three days. Now, the Jews think that Jesus is talking about the physical temple, but verse 21 tells us that Jesus is talking about himself. In other words, Jesus is now the temple of the Lord. And you see, that's why earlier in John's gospel, he says that Jesus dwelt or literally tabernacled among us. Why? Because Jesus is the true temple. So you see, the temple that David went to was meant to point us forward to the coming of Jesus, who is the true temple. We don't look at, and that's why we don't need animal sacrifices anymore. We don't look at those to behold the beauty of God. Instead, we look now to Jesus' sacrifice to behold the beauty of God. And what we see when we look at Jesus is that in Jesus, the justice and mercy of God come together and kiss. They are reconciled to each other because God's justice against sin is satisfied by Jesus's death in our place and God's mercy is made known because we are spared his wrath for Jesus's sake so you see for us as Christians now it's in Jesus that we get to know God face to face which is why the apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 6 that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So do you want to know God face to face? Do you want to gaze at his beauty? Then look to Jesus. Gaze at the beauty of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. So that's the first way David says to seek God's face. And the second way, David says, again in verse 4, is to inquire in his temple. To inquire in his temple. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, according to Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner, essentially what that word inquire means is to seek God's counsel or his will. In other words, David is saying that he wants to know God's will. He wants to seek God's counsel. He wants God to tell him how to live his life. Okay, so then how did David do that? How did he seek God's will and counsel? Well, he did it the same way you and I do it. He sought God's will and counsel through God's written word, through the Bible. Now granted, David didn't have as much of the Bible as we do, but he still went to the scriptures to know God's will. 
And do you know why David wanted to know God's will? Well, just look at verse 11. David says, teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path. So what's David saying here? He's saying, I want the Lord to teach me his will so that I can obey it. I want to walk in accordance with God's counsel. And I know that I'm dependent on him to be able to do that. So I ask him to lead me in that way. So you see, these are the two ways that David tells us to seek God's face. To gaze at the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And what I hope you can see, Christian, is that those two practices are the very lifeblood of our walk with God. And so you have to have both of them. You can't just have one or the other because if all you do is gaze at the beauty of the Lord and you never seek to do his will, then you'll never know him face to face. You'll never know him intimately. Why? Because you can't truly love someone if you don't care about their will. Just think about it. Husbands, how would your wife respond if you cared nothing about her thoughts or desires, or concerns. And every time she asked you to do something, you said, eh, I'm not going to do that. That's too much of a hassle. Now, if that's how you acted towards her, do you think she'd be fair game to then want to jump into the bedroom and enjoy a time of gazing at each other's beauty? No. Why? Because you can't have true intimacy with someone if you don't care about their will. But you see, the flip side of that is also true. If you only seek God's will and you never gaze at his beauty, then you'll also never know him face to face. Why? Because then you'll just be a Pharisee. And God will be nothing more to you than your exacting slave master. So we must do both. We must both gaze at the beauty of the Lord and also seek his will and do it if we want to know him face to face. But there's one more question we need to answer before moving on to our final point. And here it is. How does any of this help us in dealing with our fears? I mean, we still haven't answered that. Well, you see, here's the answer. If the one thing that's most important in your life is your relationship with God, is to gaze at his beauty and to walk in his ways, and if that can never be taken away from you, then what do you have to fear? Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that all your fears are just going to disappear. But when knowing God is your one thing, is the one thing you want more than anything else, then all of your fears will be put into their proper perspective. And why is that? Because when we love God more than anything else, As painful as it will be to lose our other loves, we will never ultimately be crushed. We will never ultimately be broken. Because at the end of the day, knowing him is the only thing that we need. So let me ask you, is knowing God your one thing? Is that what you want more than anything else? Because what David is telling us here is that when knowing God is our one thing, then we can deal with our fears. So what we've seen is that fear is inevitable, that God is beautiful, and lastly, let's take a quick look at how waiting is normal. Waiting 
is normal. Look at verses 13 through 14 with me again. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now, if you're still hanging with me at this point, you're probably thinking to yourself, well, this all sounds great, and it it seems pretty clear from Scripture, but how do I get rid of my fears now? I mean, I'm dreading something that's coming up really soon in the next couple of days. So give me something to silence my fears now. Well, you see, I'd love to give you something like that. And do you know why I'd love to give you something like that? Because that would mean that I would have access to that for myself, for my own fears. But unfortunately, I I don't have some secret that will make all your fears go away. And do you know why I don't have a secret? Because the Bible doesn't give us one. But I do have a book recommendation for you. The Puritan John Flavel, F-L-A-V-E-L, wrote a short little book called Triumphing Over Sinful Fear. Triumphing Over Sinful Fear. And I can't recommend it to you highly enough. I think you can get it on Kindle, Amazon.com for like $3.99. 144 pages, really short. I commend you to go find it, buy it, and read it. You'll be glad that you did. And you see, the reason that Flavel wrote that book is because he knew that each one of us, each one of us, even as Christians, will still struggle with sinful fear. And do you know why that is? Do you know why we sin when we're afraid even now as Christians? Because none of us, not one of us, has perfectly made God our one thing. Instead, we seek something else as our one thing. And in order to get that one thing, we're willing to disobey God, if that's what it takes. Because you see, if God was perfectly our one thing, then we'd never sin. We wouldn't. So then every time we do sin, what it shows us is that something else has slipped into the one thing spot where God alone belongs. And you see, we all do this. We're all guilty of putting something else in God's place. And that's why we all sin in the face of our fears. But here's the problem. If that's true, if it's true that every single one of us is guilty of sinful fear, then how can we ever hope to know God and gaze on his beauty and walk in his ways? How can we ever hope to do that? We see the only hope that we have is Jesus. Jesus is our only hope. And do you know why? Because whenever Jesus was tested by fear, he was perfectly obedient every time in your place. Every time that Jesus was tested by fear, he always did the Father's will. Why? Because knowing the Father was Jesus's one thing. It's what he wanted more than anything else. So when he was in the wilderness, alone and afraid and tempted by Satan, Jesus was perfectly obedient. And when he was in Gethsemane, alone and afraid and tempted by Satan, still Jesus was perfectly obedient. And when he was on the cross, alone and afraid and taunted by Satan, even still, Jesus 
was perfectly obedient. So what that means then is that Jesus has a perfect track record of being obedient in the face of fear. And what God has done with that track record is he has now counted it as your track record so that God now treats you as if you had obeyed as perfectly as Jesus. That's how he sees you. And do you know what he's done with all the ways that you failed to be obedient in the face of fear? He has counted those to Jesus on the cross. And on that cross, Jesus paid the penalty for your sins in full. And do you know what that means for you? It means that you're free. There's now no condemnation for you anymore. And so now, what God wants you to do, what God has called you to do, is to walk with him the rest of your days. To dwell in his presence. To gaze on his beauty and to walk in his ways. And as you do so, do you know what will happen? Your love and awe for God will grow and grow and grow. And your fears will shrink and shrink and shrink. But you see, it takes patience. This isn't a, a quick fix or a, or a band-aid like the world has tried to offer you. It's a relationship with the living God who alone can deliver you from your fears. So then here's the question. Are you willing to wait on him? Are you willing to wait on him to deliver you from your fears even as you obediently endure them? Because you see, I don't know if you've learned this yet, Christian, but waiting is the normal Christian experience. If if I could summarize it in one word, it's waiting. And what are we waiting for? We are waiting for the return of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because he's the only one who can redeem both us and this fallen world. And so we wait for him. And as we wait, in the midst of this fear-fraught world, we rejoice that there's one thing we never have to fear. We never have to fear that God will leave us or forsake us. Because he has us safely in the palm of his hand. And because of that, we will seek him. Imperfectly, absolutely. But we will seek him as our one thing. We will gaze upon his beauty in the face of Jesus Christ. And we will seek his will in his word. And we will strive with all our might to obey him. And we will wait for that glorious day. When every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because on that day, all of our fears will cease. And so we pray together, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray to our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would come quickly. Father, there's not a a one of us here who hasn't struggled with fear in this past week because it's it's the very undercurrent of, of our lives because we love things. That's how you've created us. And yet, Father, we confess that 
We have loved other things more than we have loved you. We have allowed other things to slip into that one thing spot where you alone belong. And so as a result of that, we have participated and stand guilty before you of of sinful fear. And yet we're thankful that you have sent Jesus to perfectly face fear and be obedient, perfectly obedient through it. And Father, we're thankful that he paid the penalty on the cross for all the guilt of our sinful fear. And we have now been counted with Jesus' track record of perfect obedience through fear. So that that's how you see us now. We've been forgiven. And you've sent your Holy Spirit to dwell within us. To empower us. To give us all that we need to endure through all the fears that we face in this life. And Father, we're thankful That we have the hope that even as we wait and endure our fears, we are waiting knowing that we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We will see the coming of Christ. And everything that fills us with fear will be eradicated. And we will rejoice in you. And so we pray that you would continue to sustain us and that we would not just endure our fears, but actually be so bold and courageous that, that we put ourselves in fearful situations because we know that we can trust you in those. We love you, Father. And we ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.